Thanks for listening to Downrange. The podcast is absolutely free. But if you want ad-free listening and early access to next week's episodes, subscribe to Tenderfoot Plus. For more information, check out tenderfootplus.com. Enjoy the episode. Downrange is sponsored by BetterHelp. Do you look forward to the holidays? Maybe you struggle with seasonal blues. This time of year can be a lot, and it's natural to feel some sadness or anxiety about it. But adding something new and positive to your life can counteract some of those feelings. Therapy can be a bright spot amid all the stress and change. Something to look forward to, to make you feel grounded, and to give you the tools to manage everything going on. It's helpful for learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries, and it empowers you to be the best version of yourself, and it isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out the brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Find your bright spot this season with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com range today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash range. Warning. This podcast contains adult content and recreations of battle scenes, including violence, gunshots, explosions, and graphic descriptions, which may be triggering for those with past trauma. Listener discretion is advised. Now, back to our story. When that training was over, the war was just outside of the military base. The first Iraqi division, when everybody graduated, we participated in the, an Al-Ambar campaign in Fallujah. We did well. I mean, uh, look, it was the first time these groups watching an Iraqi soldier who is highly trained, did PT twice a day, is in a great shape, been eating well, carrying good weapons, and yeah, we did phenomenal. The first Iraqi division is still doing phenomenal to this day, actually. It's still the only division that hasn't lost the fight against Al-Qaeda or ISIS. When I went back to the base, I went to the hospital, passed my eyes, and the war just started at its highest capacity. People were dying all over Baghdad. I remember going through the gate and watching a lot of soldiers in civilian clothes leaving with their packbacks. A lot of people are quitting and they're leaving. And I just sat there in the most devastated moment of my life that most of my men died. People were giving up and surrendering and just uh, taking their civilian clothes and their bags and getting out of the gate. They thought they were there for a better life. They thought they were there for a better country and they just realized they don't want to go to war with the rest of the country. And we still had people who were there for the right reasons. And uh, he was immediately called out and uh, sent uh, to the Iraqi Ministry of Defense. It's what's called the MOD. And it was a request from the American Special Forces to have an Iraqi NCOIC in charge of protecting this building. I was immediately promoted to a command sergeant major in the Iraqi military, which was usually a rank that is someone about 25 years older than me. The Iraqi MOD was basically the equivalent of the Pentagon. The MOD is the biggest budget in the country, is where all the money is, and the Ministry of Defense had all that. When I got to the MOD, it was a building that was surrounded by 10-foot concrete barriers. 
My job was to protect uh, people on the inside of the building and protect the front checkpoint, which is right next to checkpoint one on the green zone. Another dangerous point where a lot of car bombs blew up on a daily basis. So that was one worry. And then there was about like 3,000 Iraqi employees that would come through that gate of all different backgrounds. I remember I was being escorted by a Marine to walk through the checkpoint, make sure all my defense lines are in check, towers, everything, and to protect the building from every angle. And I, at that point, I, I didn't know exactly why the American military or the American Special Forces have requested me to be there. They had about 50 American advisors who are responsible about building the new Iraqi military. So they will be traveling from the green zone, which is a U.S. territory, to what our MOD area, which is considered a red zone. They made a little door through the concrete barriers. And that's where all the Americans would come in through the day to work on these departments and build the infrastructure of the Iraqi military. I remember taking that walk with that Marine, and I was looking at the faces of every Iraqi in that building, and I just looked, and I'm like, you want me to protect the building from the enemy in the outside while the enemy is already inside of it. Most of the faces I saw were people from the old regime people who were definitely not good people. This is even going to be more of a disaster than where I came from. The fight was completely different. I didn't only have a, a frontline battle to protect a checkpoint and protect my soldiers. I also had uh, concerns that I have to work among people that might be dangerous to me. We received a guy from Fallujah, actually, as a minister of defense, because uh, things were getting divided based on the political background. We get the minister, he shows up with a large convoy, <laughs> a lot of people in that convoy, a lot of people in those trucks, and there was about 200 men that showed up with him. I mean, look, Ambar province, this is where 1,200 Marines died, U.S. Marines. This place is no joke. I mean, the 99% of people in that area were not pro-American, hated the United States, and did not want to be participating in our government. Somehow we get a minister from there. He showed up, and there was a leader among all these guys, 200 men, known by Sabah Delamey, started walking around the building. And I still remember looking at every guy with a gun in his hand around the ministry. They were all military age. And you could tell that all other elbows were dark. When you see someone with the dark elbows, you knew that they were doing something physical. A lot of people, when they shoot, they depend on their elbows. You know, these guys weren't uh, construction workers. They weren't anything. They were fighters. They lay in the ground, and most of Al-Qaeda was doing that kind of operations at the time. We just looked at their faces, and you just immediately knew that these guys are up to no good. Every time an American walked that hallway to enter the building, it's almost like they saw an exotic animal walking through the zoo. They couldn't believe they were watching actually actual Americans. There was not one place in the world where you can have that many American officers of high rank between a major to a full bird colonel walking every single day with no, not exactly full gear, but walking maybe with a nine millimeter on their legs. That's all they got. Pistol, nothing more. And some of them would take off their body armor and Kevlar and just get comfortable inside of the building. And I just uh, felt something wasn't gonna be right. At that point, it was my job to make sure that all these Americans evacuate the building, leave the building around 4 p.m., and the Iraqis leave from the other side to go home. That was my job, to make sure that everybody's safe. One night, Sabad Delamey, who was the leader of that group of the personal security detail for the minister, showed up around 11 o'clock at night, 
without the minister, brought a truck and parked it towards the T-walls. The truck was actually with the teeth in front of it, which is actually a truck that lifts the T-walls. And we asked them at the time, we said, what are you guys using this truck for? And they said, we are moving furniture for the minister's office. And because they had a higher authority, they were able to do that. The furniture was completely done. So I didn't know what they were moving and it didn't look like there was any new furniture being brought up. I was extremely concerned. So I told my towers that uh, if you see this, this truck move towards the wall, open fire immediately. We weren't sure if they were gonna move the walls get people inside to attack us. We weren't really sure what they're up to. I immediately put my cavalry, my body armor, I took my ammo, my gun, and I, I, and I just felt like it's, it's gonna be bad and I don't know what they're up to. There was Americans, there's about maybe three or four Americans who were allowed to stay after 4 p.m. Those Americans worked at the Iraqi Operations Center, so their job is to brief General Petraeus every morning. In case of anything happens within the Iraqi operations at night, troops in contact, losses, whatever it is. My job was to evacuate these four Americans no matter what. Take them, have them go towards the American side and not go back to the building. So we immediately ran inside. I thought once I get them out, there was nothing there for him to do. The only thing he can do is attack Iraqis. The building was two floors, and I uh, went to the first floor where the Iraqi Operations Center got ready to evacuate the Americans. And I sent two of my soldiers to the second floor to sweep it up and just to make sure that there's nobody is in the second floor, nobody's left there. All of a sudden, I got the call from the radio from the two of my soldiers who were moving towards that hallway. They said, all the locks to the top of the building has been broken. We usually lock some of these gates at night with a chain and lock and all the locks and chains were removed. There was a light in one of the rooms and it was an American officer that actually knew in the country, sitting there staying late on the computer, has repeated this behavior for a few days. He did not realize that he needed to leave by 4 p.m. They have noticed him. And we realized at that point when they broke the locks to the backside of the building or the T-wall truck, at that point we realized that they were actually there to kidnap an American, to take an American out of the building. And if there was one place in Iraq, they could have done that, it will be this place. Downrange is sponsored by BetterHelp. Do you look forward to the holidays? Maybe you struggle with seasonal blues. This time of year can be a lot, and it's natural to feel some sadness or anxiety about it. But adding something new and positive to your life can counteract some of those feelings. Therapy can be a bright spot amid all the stress and change. Something to look forward to, to make you feel grounded, and to give you the tools to manage everything going on. It's helpful for learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries, and it powers you to be the best version of yourself, and it isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out the brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Find your bright spot this season with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com range today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot range. We 
we immediately ran into the top floor. And I remember going through the hallway with uh, my soldiers, who were about 12 of them. And there was about 150 of them downstairs getting ready to go up the stairs to the other side of the hallway. And I remember my soldiers looking at me saying, well, we're not going to be able to handle this. If we start a firefight in a hallway against all of them, we will be done and finished. As soon as we went in there, they were actually debating in the first floor. We ran and we got that American officer out and we walked him through the other side of the building. And the building was a huge building. It's probably the size of the Pentagon. Ran everybody to the American side without them knowing. And we immediately pulled out. They went up within... Uh, minutes they looked to the room and then they went to the bathroom and they checked and they were looking everywhere in that floor to see where that american soldier went and then they went downstairs and they realized there was nobody in the building no americans were left they immediately ran back to normal got on their vehicles and left i immediately picked up the phone and called the american intelligence officer in charge at that time and i called him and informed him of what's happening john burke immediately picked up his phone and called the U.S. commander in Iraq. They uh, banned all American advisors to enter the building for 72 hours. And it was the first time the MOD was empty of all Americans. And it was the first time for the United States or for America as a command ship to figure out how they can operate with their enemy in the same building. How could you operate in the same room with a guy that, who may be a member of Al-Qaeda? They spent about 72 hours, and during that time, I was quiet in my place, and I got a call from the intelligence officer. He said, uh, you need to get out of the building. There will be a few SUVs that will drive by. They'll pick you up, and you're going go to go to a secure location. And I went outside the building towards the green zone, and, and SUVs pulled in, and there were Americans in uh, civilian clothes and body armors armed and uh, they said get in the car and I got in the car and they driven me to an unknown location in the green zone actually it was a compound of some kind of an intelligent compound and I was taken to a room and I sat there and uh, a female introduced herself as an agent of an OGA other government agencies and there was another officer in civilian clothes who introduced himself as a Marine Corps uh, intelligence officer from the Ambar province Ambar province is where Sabah and the, all the minister crew was coming from there was a third person there who was a defense intelligence agency agent. Then they sat there and they looked me in the face and they said, uh, do you want to work for us? And I looked back at them and I said, uh, beside operating in one of the most dangerous buildings in the world, I don't know how many side jobs I can do. I wasn't sure really what that meant working for us. I said, you know, Sabah is in the building. You guys can go ahead and detain him and, and do what you have to do. When they introduced themselves as an intelligence agent at the time, in my Iraqi law, if you communicate with a foreign intelligence, the punishment is execution for that. If anybody in Iraq knew that you work for the U.S. intelligence or the American intelligence, you would immediately be executed or killed. The danger that comes with that was extremely horrific. What if my family get caught and then someone in my family has to pay the price for what I would do? So I said, what exactly do you guys need me to do? I wasn't sure at the time why they were not taking actions immediately. But what it looked like, the Marines were heavily engaged in that area. The Marine Corps had no intelligence lead because the cities of Umbar and Fallujah were evacuated. The enemy was, had a stronghold. There was zero intelligence leads, which shocked me at the time. There was no intelligence leads into who's who. And it looked like the U.S. intelligence wanted to figure out who exactly these guys were in the Umbar province they come from. I was told to go back to the MOD, act like normal, 
and to try to figure out who they are, one by one. Most of these members from Bambar province have made Iraqi IDs for the Iraqi Ministry of Defense. Inside of the Iraqi personal department, they would fill a file, an application, that include their first and last name, fingerprint, blood type, and tribal name. I went back, and I actually knew a girl at the time who worked in the personal department. And I asked her if I can access some of the people from the minister's uh, security detail. And she asked why. I said, you know, I'm trying to make them a green zone badges. So it's easier for the minister to go to the green zone. And I'm trying to help them out. She gave me the files. And the most important file we were trying to get hold of was Sabah Delamy, the leader of the crew. We got his file, took it back and handed over to them. At the time, the U.S. intelligence actually had about 5,000 names. It was a disk or an old database they bought that a member of the old regime have sold these names. These are our most dangerous operatives that worked for Saddam. Some of them were members of al Fidain, Saddam suicide fighters, former intelligence officers for the regime. And they had a match made with Sabah Delamy. So Sabah came back. He was a major in al Fidain, which is Saddam suicide fighters. He was highly trained. He was a member of Al-Qaeda, and he was in the building, actually, on a mission to kidnap an American and take him down to the Ambar province. And by having that access and that authority as a minister's office security, they will be able to take this American on a convoy, on a security detail, to the Ambar province without anybody stopping them, searching them. They got access to the minister through his nephew, who is also a member of Al-Qaeda. They were in the building to change the war in Iraq. When I handed that information, I was told to wait. I got an argument with an intelligent officer at the time, an intelligent agent, and I said, do you guys need to go detain him right now? Or I'll do something about it. And they said, you just need to hang out. Don't do anything. Do not make him feel that you're watching him and just leave him alone until we take care of him. At that point, I didn't know what the U.S. intelligence has or what kind of technologies that was in their hands. So I made my phone call when he was leaving and switching shifts to go to the Ambar province because every two, three weeks he would go home. And that's the moment they were waiting for. So he left. I made my phone call and I told him he left the building. Didn't ask any questions. He went back with his entourage. They had a UAV on top of him the whole time. He pulled into a compound or a big villa house in Garma, Fallujah. And it was a farmhouse. They dropped a team on him of Americans, long bearded guys, and they went inside and they found a door that goes under his bed. What they found is there were two metal containers buried right behind the farm. It hosted about 25 foreign fighters from different countries, from Saudi Arabia, Yemen, other countries. These were the most violent fighters among Al-Qaeda. They had run an AC system to the containers who were under the ground. They have buried a lot of cachet, a lot of explosive in the farm. This was like the hornet's nest. The Marines have went by that place a thousand times. You would never know there is actually a barracks of Al-Qaeda right behind the house, unless you move that door that's under his bed. It looked like a basement door, but it's right on the ground with two handles on it. The foreign fighters were arrested. The cachet was about a football field full of cachet, football field. A lot of cachet that couldn't be removed, so they actually had to blow it up in its own place. The explosive was used in car bombs to kill our troops over there. I met the agent the week after that. I asked her, I said, what happened to Sabah? And she said, he's gone. I said, what do you mean he's gone? And she said, he's gone where he can't have a lawyer present. And that was the last word I heard about him. 
Downrange will be back after this short break. Now, back to our story. I was ordered by the U.S. intelligence to put a database of all terrorist organizations that are operating in the building. There was about over 17 to 18 different terrorist organizations operating in the building, but you had to make a priority of who's the most dangerous terrorist and the groups that were in there. I mean, there were so many groups that it was so difficult. The Islamic State, who's now ISIS, was around back then. You had Naqshbandis, you had the Batakor, who was the Iranian intelligence, Muhammad's army, Mahdi militia. You couldn't really figure out who's who. They were controlling somehow the Iraqi MOD, the Iraqi government, and they were operating in such a high level. And the differences between them is what helped me get in between and try to figure out who's who and build that database to the American intelligence so they can know what they're dealing with. I divided them by groups and figured out each person, each officer, each individuals, submitted hundreds of reports of uh, individuals that had a red flag. The more I built in that database into who's who, is the more I got scared every single morning into who was coming through that door. My job was to protect these Americans in the building at all costs. Their safety is first. At the time, I had a guy who made number one on the list. His name was Ziad Delamy. He was also from the Ambar province. He was actually an officer at the Iraqi Operations Center where so many high-ranking American officers would come through so many foreign ministers. That hallway in the MOD where this guy was, or the location, was the most critical. We have kept an eye on him, so he would come in for every single day from nine to five job. He's not a full-time soldier like the rest of us. He would come in civilian clothes, put on uniform, mile inside, change in his locker, and then go to do his job and leave. I have some of my sources at the time. I was watching him, and I have recruited the guard that was in front of that operation center to keep an eye on him and he reported back to me that he was disappearing every hour. Every 45 minutes, he was disappearing for 15 minutes for a smoke break. So at the time, as the command sergeant major of the Iraqi MOD, I have made a rule where all Iraqis were not allowed to smoke in the inside. I mean, it's a very common thing in the Middle East. People smoke inside everywhere. We told them that due to the Americans' presence in the building, they don't like people smoking inside of the building. So there was one balcony, big giant balcony in the MOD that we had cameras on. And we made everybody go there to smoke. When he reported that he was disappearing for 15 minutes, I didn't think it was a big deal. I actually went to look through the footage to see where he would be and where exactly he was standing in the balcony for these 15 minutes. What was he doing? Was he on a phone? Was he on anything? I looked at the footage and I couldn't see him. And I went back and asked the guard, I said, where is he smoking? Is he smoking inside or outside? Because I don't see him. I reported that back to the U.S. intelligence team at the time. When I reported that back, they said, we need you to go in there yourself and find out where he's going. We utilized a few people and we realized that he would go into his locker room where he keeps his uniform and his civilian clothes. We couldn't tell what he was doing in the locker room. At the time, the intelligence agent said, uh, no matter what it is, as soon as you leave at 5, at 5.15, you're going to be trying to break that lock. We need you to check that locker and make sure there's nothing in it. So I took a, a lock that was similar to his. It was a common thing. Sometimes locks were made by the same company in Iraq, same fa- manufacturer. I actually bought a lock that was the same size because I was going to break his and we didn't want him to feel anything. We were searching everywhere he went, bathrooms, breaks, everything, trying to figure out what he was doing exactly. He could be on a phone talking to a girl. He could be doing something, but they said just to be safe because we have so many important people coming through. I mean, we had like generals, 
Donald Rumsfeld came by that hallway one time. All John Abazed, four-star general. The place, he's so critical that you needed to check and make sure that this guy's not doing anything. And he lived in a very dangerous neighborhood. He was there every day. No one was bothering him. He wasn't afraid to leave the building at a certain time, like the rest of the Iraqis. He looked comfortable. I went in after he left to check his locker, and I still remember I took the lock, broke the lock, opened the locker, and I saw his uniform. And I checked all his pocket, put my hands on it. All of a sudden, I moved the uniform, and there was a bag, a little small bag behind it. And I was like, I knew if I don't check the bag. I mean, my heart was pumping because I didn't want anybody to see me there. There were Iraqi officers who were on duty, and they knew I don't belong there. I just needed to do it as fast as possible and get out. And I immediately grabbed the bag, and I was like, I knew that they were going to ask me questions if I checked everything in the locker, every corner, everything. And I just took the bag, dropped it in the ground. And I opened it. And when I opened it, there was um, a lot of smashed tobacco inside of it, smashed cigarettes. As I opened the rest of the bag, there was a suicide built with C4 that was built all around the back. It was built actually around a military belt, the military belt that went to one of his uniforms. The belt was fully, fully heavy. A lot of C4 were in it. There was a detonator in it as well. There was a lot of smashed tobacco and cigarettes right in the middle. And what it looked like is he brought a small amount of C4 inside of a cigarette box that was manufactured and it looked like so when it came through our checkpoint, if we had opened that cigarette box, it would look like nothing but a bunch of cigarettes inside of it. But way inside of it, there was a space where he actually smuggled explosives every single day. He did this for about probably months, and we didn't know he was doing that. It was about 75% done, and I think he was waiting to load more into it. Just for the amount that he had, it would have quietly made a disaster in that place. I immediately had to hit the emergency button, evacuate any Americans in the building. And at that point, everybody in the building knew who I was, knew that I had some kind of connection to the U.S. intelligence. The intelligence team have thanked me for my work and said, you can leave the building now. And I just didn't know where I would go. And I just said, I'm not leaving the building. I'm staying on my job. I'm not going anywhere. They said, we would highly advise you on leaving. They're into you. Phone calls were being made immediately when that emergency button was made. I was seen at a place where I shouldn't be. And I just decided to stay. I don't go home. I don't get out of the building. I'm there the whole time. I didn't have a plan of making it out of Iraq. But I knew that if I lived to the next day, it would be my lucky day. I was going to die in uniform anyway. What difference would it make if I leave? And I stayed. One of my team members, uh, also one of my sources that was inside of the building, Came in, he hasn't been home in months, bought some toys, things he wanted to take to go see his kids. My teammates left the building. Within 14 minutes outside of the MOD, he was assassinated and did not make it to see his family. That was a message to let me know that they already know. And they were coming to us and they were waiting for me to leave the building. That was the only place where I was secure. At that point, I had to leave the country and evacuate and decided to leave the MOD forever. I did not see my family since uh, 2005. I was not allowed to get any contacts with them. So actually the first time they heard from me is when I got to the United States. 
didn't want to cost them their life. I didn't want to get anybody in trouble or get anybody killed. And it was the safest. But when I got to the U.S., I had the feeling of that the war for me was over. That this was a new start, new life. And when I got out, I couldn't believe how quiet America was compared to Iraq. There was no sounds of explosions. There was no sounds of people. I was still nervous. I was coming from a very big time intelligent operation to arriving in the U.S. I still had the feelings that people may be still after me, even though I was here in the U.S. And all these crazy actions, working undercover against the most dangerous terrorists in the world to the quietest place on the planet, America. The war and the action and the, the pain stopped right in there. In my opinion, America was the freedom, the representative freedom for me. And the American soldier, which I admire the most, the American soldier is the true equalizer. The American soldier is the true equalizer that kept the enemies of the United States on top of the mountain in Afghanistan. It also exhausted Al-Qaeda in Iraq. It limited the Iranian influence in the Middle East. I couldn't have done it without the American soldier being there. Every time and every situation and every tough place that I was in my life, somehow I was saved by the American soldier. The American soldier have made a difference in my life. And to me, my life was saved by the American soldiers multiple times. Becoming a citizen was definitely a special feeling, definitely an honor to have. It was the least I could do to say thank you. It's kind of nice to fight for America before you even knew what it looked like. How many stories important for everyone to hear? When U.S. troops are stationed overseas, they are not the only ones fighting for freedom and justice. There are people like Hamidi who are putting their lives in danger in hopes of changing their home for the better. Without soldiers like Hamidi, who knows where we would be? Again, I'm Remy Adeleke, and this is Downrange. Join us next time for another story of heroism and action. Thanks for listening. Downrange is a production of Tenderfoot TV and Telegraph Creative. Our hosts are former Navy SEAL Remy Adeleke and former Army Ranger Rich Chapa. Our senior producers are Meredith Stedman and Mike Rooney. From Tenderfoot TV, executive producers are Donald Albright and Payne Lindsay. From Telegraph Creative, executive producers are Cliff Sims and Darren McBurnett. From Extreme Concepts, executive producer is Landon Ash. Produced by Eric Quintana, Tracy Kaplan, and Jamie Albright. Dramatization casting and directing by Greg Cooler. Sound designed by Cooper Skinner. Mix and mastered by Cooper Skinner. Original music by Makeup and Vanity Set. Additional production by Christina Dana. Marketing and branding by Telegraph Creative. This episode features the song Fire and Smoke, written by Benjamin Rubino, Bo Steele, and Stacey Stavola. Performed by the band Steel, courtesy of Fire River Records. This episode features voice acting by Anthony Lopez, Ryan Jones, Sekeb Sikander, and Chosie Ayub. Special thanks to Oren Rosenbaum and Grace Royer from UTA, Ryan Nord, 
Jesse Nord, and Matthew Papa from the Nord Group, Beck Media and Marketing. Visit us at downrangepod.com or on social media at Downrange Podcast. Thanks for listening. Downrange is sponsored by BetterHelp. Do you look forward to the holidays? Maybe you struggle with seasonal blues. This time of year can be a lot, and it's natural to feel some sadness or anxiety about it. But adding something new and positive to your life can counteract some of those feelings. Therapy can be a bright spot amid all the stress and change. Something to look forward to, to make you feel grounded, and to give you the tools to manage everything going on. It's helpful for learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries, and it powers you to be the best version of yourself, and it isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out the brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Find your bright spot this season with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com range today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot range.